Welcome to Category 5 Technology TV. It's episode number 624 of the show. Now, I gotta say, while President Donald Trump doesn't know that Category 5 exists, it does. We're here to show you that Category 5 does indeed exist. And this week, we're going to be actually speaking with a gentleman who runs a company that is revolutionizing Wi-Fi technology. And I mean, we're talking about expanding your home and business Wi-Fi to bandwidth that you've never even thought about. We're going to be learning all about the tech. I've thought about a lot of bandwidth. Oh, you just wait, son. (laughs) Stick around. The Category 5 is something that uh, I don't know that I've ever even heard the term, other than I know it's there. This is Category 5 Technology TV. Our live recordings are trusted only to solid-state drives by Kingston Technology. Revive your computer with improved performance and reliability over traditional hard drives with Kingston SSDs. Category 5 TV streams live with Telestream Wirecast and Nimble Streamer. Tune in every week on Roku, Kodi, Plex, and other HLS video players. For local showtimes, visit Category5.tv. Category5.tv is a member of the Tech Podcast Network. If it's tech, it's here. Cat5.tv slash TPN and the International Association of Internet Broadcasters, cat5.tv slash IAIB. I'm so happy to have you here, everybody. I'm Robbie Ferguson. I'm Sasha Rickman. And I'm Jeff Weston. Where's Henry? He's not here. He's actually off-planet still. Oh, yeah, I still, know. Eh? I know. He's still off-planet. It's a long journey, yep. folks. But thanks to technology, we have an intergalactic connection oh, where we can say hi with Henry. Oh, great. Well, here he is. Hey guys, how's it going? It's Henry here. Sorry I can't make it to the show. Uh, kind of uh, got stuck on Mars, you see. It's uh, a lot of red sand here. It's uh, it's pretty nice. Um, I discovered a lot of liquid water over there. It's pretty cool. But yeah, sorry I can't make it uh, this week. Hopefully uh, Elon Musk can give me a ride home for uh, next week. So till then, uh, have a great day everyone and uh, see you then. Oh yeah, my dog says hi. Hey, well... Thank you, Henry. Now, before we jump into it, I want to, want to remind you to make sure you subscribe to us on YouTube and also click that little bell. That's going to make sure that you get those notifications anytime we post a new and exciting video or when we're live. So tonight, we've got a fantastic interview planned for you. Now, Andrew Scaffel is here from, uh, well, he's actually the CEO, the president of Edgewater Wireless. Now, they're revolutionizing how Wi-Fi technology works in the home, in the workplace. And we're going to learn all about that tonight. Andrew, it is a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Now, could you tell us a little bit about what Edgewater does and how your technology is about to change things? For Wi-Fi? At, at Edgewater Wireless, we make Wi-Fi better. We're the industry leader in uh, what's called Wi-Fi spec- spectrum slicing technology for the residential and commercial markets. And it's a real disruptive approach for Wi-Fi designed to deal with capacity and the demanding applications that are emerging. I can absolutely understand that. I mean, we work in a studio where, you know, you bring in your, so you're connected with Wi-Fi on your phone. 
chatting with the the community here. Yep. You can see our Discord over there. Yep. Uh, I'm connected actually with you, Andrew, um, through Wi-Fi as well. So this communication, I mean, mind blowing that the communication is happening through Wi-Fi, and you're also communicating with our chat That's right. on Wi-Fi, and ev- eventually things start to get bogged down. Yes. And we've all experienced that at home, at work. <laughs> Right? That's the way of it. Yep. Yeah. And Upgrade to a bigger batter router with more yeah, antennas. That's when our Roku's start buffering and <laughs> things just aren't quite working. So, Andrew, how is your technology special compared to, like, the Wi-Fi that we currently have in our homes? You know, a, a, what you've just described is really the traditional approach to Wi-Fi. Yeah. The, the technology's been around since 1999. And since 1999... Wi-Fi has followed the same radio architecture. It's been based on a single channel radio. One radio, one channel connecting to your device. And it, it, it's a lot like creating a, a single lane road. Yeah. Where you have one car on the road, works really well. But you start putting a lot of traffic on it, it gets really congested. Jeff travels to Toronto and he knows exactly what you're talking about. Oh my about. goodness, congestion, yeah. I hate it! <laughs> that's exactly it. That, that's exactly it. So you know, what we've done at Edgewater Wireless is taken a completely revolutionary approach to Wi-Fi. Okay. We've said, you know, how do you deal with traffic? How do you deal with congestion? Yeah. And we've, we've built and patented the industry's first and only multi-lane highway for Wi-Fi. We offer multiple concurrent channels within a given coverage area. Wow. So it's really designed for all of the issues that you described at the beginning of the show. So, Andrew, I I have to stop you there. I mean, we've all heard of MIMO, so multi-input, multi-output. This is where we've got uh, our our modern routers have multiple antennas. So um, if I want to spend a little extra, I can get something that has four antennas, say, and I've got four inputs, four outputs. So I am basically, from my very simple Wi-Fi understanding, I've got multiple channels or multiple radios that are giving me connections. So this is where things are going from what I understand. We've got Wi-Fi 6. We've got now Wi-Fi 6 is finally here and Wi-Fi 7 is already basically saying that, hey, we're better and let's move toward this technology Um, using MIMO, multi-input, multi-output, in order to provide multiple lanes. How does your technology approach that? How is it different? So you Mimos are some really cool engineering. Yeah. What what Mimo does is take that single channel and spreads the broadcast out over multiple antennas. So the multiple output, multiple input. Yeah. Okay. Now in spreading it out over multiple antennas, if you're talking to a device that has multiple antennas, like your big laptop on your desk there, and you have four antennas on on your router, four antennas on your laptop. You get some great burst speed. Yeah. But there's some significant trade-offs with with MIMO. Each time you add an antenna, you need to cut the power output in half. So more antennas means your coverage area shrinks smaller and smaller. And it becomes more susceptible to interference. And that's why a lot of what we're seeing in Wi-Fi today is based on that uh, on, on those issues, right? Yeah, the more yeah. Devices you have, the more interference there is. Huh. And, and it does really. It really seems like they're throwing more uh, more radios 
at the problem. Like, let's just add more antennas. Let's add more <laughs> inputs and outputs. That's, that's right. And so you see things like, like Nemo adding more antennas, or you see the qualm rate, which is the, yeah. the, the number of uh, dots of information that get, gets passed each time. You see those things climb higher and higher. Now, looking back at 1999, when Wi-Fi was first envisioned, it was envisioned for use in your basement, right? From right. your laptop to a router, you're maybe downloading an email or AOL or whatever you're using in 1999. Yeah. <laughs> now, fast forward to today, and your average house has, what, you know, 10, 20 devices, and the cable industry <laughs> is planning for 40 to 60 devices in your home. It's a completely different dynamic. So oh, a real. lot of these things increase the burst speed, but they decrease the airtime utilization or the amount of spectrum that's available for all of those other devices. So, you know, what we've done at, at Edgewater is we said, well, you know, that's great, and it works really well for those, you know, burst applications, but, but really, how do you increase capacity? Well, you, you actually need more radios in a given coverage area. Yeah. Now, the problem with doing that using a traditional radio is you create interference. You know, you, can, you notice that mm -hmm. in your house when you stick two access points close together and the performance declines. That's adjacent right. and co-channel interference. So what we've done is you know, through our, our patent portfolio and some really cool technology is we've eliminated or mitigated the impacts of adjacent and co-channel interference to deliver yeah. more performance in the real world. Wow. Jeff and I uh, actually ran into one another at a concert recently. Yes. And what did they have up on the, on the screen? It was some game that the kids play. Oh, Some game yeah. that the kids play. Yeah, it was it was just one of those interactive games, like something from like Jackbox games or whatever, where everybody can connect to through the uh, Wi-Fi. Yeah, through the oh. Wi-Fi yeah. and through their cell phone to this server within the building. And there, there was what yeah. two hundred and fifty people in the room. Yeah, and, and you know what, Andrew? Connecting. I could not connect. Oh, you couldn't. Oh. And my poor kids, Andrew. I'll tell you what. My kids. I had my three kids there at the concert with me, and they all wanted to participate in this game. So the band was up, and they had it up on the screen, and everybody connect and play. And we couldn't get connected. My wife and I could not get on because everyone else was already using the bandwidth. Right. Right. So my poor kids were like, "Please, Dad, you gotta buy a data plan." <laughs> you know, like this is really what it came down to, and. So we were in a, in the situation where in this concert we couldn't get that connectivity. That explains why you didn't win the game. Yeah, I absolutely. I thought you just couldn't even it. participate. So, <laughs> is is this going to open that up to like is your technology, Andrew, going to be able to give us the ability to have more connectivity and more devices in a scenario such as that? Absolutely. You know, the biggest, the biggest challenge in that scenario is the first people to connect take, take the airtime, right? They, they take up the time slots available Woody. so nobody else can connect. And this is exactly where we play. You know, our, our you know, real genesis of our idea was around um, stadiums and venues. Right? Yeah. We have all yeah. of these people in close proximity. And we've done some extraordinary, you know, extraordinary things there in adding more channels and delivering that capacity. Now, now fast forward to the home, 
And what we're seeing in the home now and in talking to some of the biggest cable providers in the world, you know, up to 40% of their customer care calls are Wi-Fi related. So mm. it's an extraordinary problem in the home as well. Sure. Yeah. So what has you personally, I mean, as the president, the CEO of the very company that's bringing us this patented technology, what has you so excited about your technology? You know, for, for me, it's, it's the, the extraordinary opportunity that's in front of us. You know, we've done something that is revolutionary. It's different. And we've transitioned from that phase of, well, these guys are just crazy, you know, because they've got something different. We're still in that phase, just so <laughs> you're aware. That, that, that's right. <laughs> and, and so, you know, that, that transition from the, the crazy, innovative idea that may or may not have a market yeah. to all of a sudden the market has shifted to density. Hmm. And, and the, the realization that... You know, all the speed in the world isn't going to help you if you're stuck in traffic. So mm. that requires an extraordinary shift in the way Wi-Fi has been delivered. And that's what gets me really excited is this enormous opportunity for, you know, the, the, the you know, millions of residential um, customers in the world. Yeah. Billions. Wow. You're coming up with such a thought that like just the, the very thought that has never occurred to me, which is we're all about, give me more speed. Right. I, want, I want that 30 gigabit Wi-Fi. That's what I'm hoping for with Wi-Fi 7. But first come, first serve, folks. So, hey, if you're the 250th person sitting at the concert, I'm sorry. You're, you're not. Yeah, you're, you're out of luck. Sorry, folks. Uh, we're going to speak more with Andrew about this technology. When we return, we're going to be talking about licensing. We're going to be talking about adoption and how Andrew and his company are actually bringing this technology, uh, bringing multi-channel, single radio Wi-Fi to the masses. Stick around. Since its creation, Wi-Fi devices have used a single-channel technology for both sending and receiving data. Traffic going up keeps data from coming down, and the amount of devices only adds to the problem. Dual-channel Wi-Fi promises to ease our wireless congestion. At Cable Labs, we have liberated devices by enabling one or more new channels designated for downstream data-only traffic, which essentially eliminates video issues such as buffering, pixelation, and other annoying side effects from our single-channel past. This downstream data-only channel alleviates congestion with the help of a configurable traffic routing filter that diverts data packets to the additional channels based on different aspects of data traffic. Time-critical data and large downstream traffic, like video, can make use of the data-only channels, while all upstream traffic and small downstream packets, like emails and texts, remain in the primary channel. The end result is effective and efficient use of Wi-Fi, so you can keep everyone in your home happy and connected. Dual-channel Wi-Fi keeps internet traffic flowing, while reducing the Wi-Fi bottleneck. I'm speaking with Andrew Scaffel. He's the president and CEO of Edgewater Wireless. Now, Andrew, before the break, you mentioned uh, a particular technology, which I'm curious about. You called it Wi-Fi Spectrum Slicing. Now, it was a quick mention, 
but I have no idea what you're talking about. Can you explain <laughs> that to me? So Wi-Fi spectrum slicing is simply taking the scarce spectrum and slicing it up okay. and allowing more independent channels to operate within the space. So it's a really, it's a really revolutionary approach to uh, the way Wi-Fi is delivered. So is this, so we're taking an existing connectivity, like I'm just trying to get my head around this, Andrew. So understand, I want to be a little bit of a proxy for my viewers. I want to understand this, but I also want my viewers to, to vicariously understand this through me. So are we taking an existing single channel radio and splicing it up in such a way that it is now accessible with more inputs and outputs simultaneously? Is that what we're talking about? That's that's right. So if you look at Wi-Fi, it's either in the 2.4 or the 5 gigahertz spectrum today. Right. We can take the 2.4 gigahertz spectrum and slice it up so you can pack more radios operating, you know, transmitting and receiving within the given area. Right. You know, in, in 2.4, that's three concurrent channels. In 5 gigahertz, we're, we're shipping three channels today, but that's going all the way up to nine concurrent channels. Wow. So it's a, 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 a phenomenal shift to the capacity available. Fantastic. We all know about full duplex and mm-hmm. bi-directional data travel. And, you know, if we only have unidirectional data, well, if I'm sending data, I can't receive data at the same time. Right. I need that constant bi-directionality of the technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're talking about opening that up into a wider space. Now, just uh, just quickly, before we get into viewer questions, we've got some questions that have come in on our chat. Jeff, you're standing by. Sasha, you're standing by. And folks, if you, are, if you happen to be watching live, you are one of the, the chosen few. And you've got an opportunity to ask those questions in our Discord so as well cool. as IRC. Yeah, it's a great opportunity for you to get those questions in. Before we get into that, Andrew, uh, we saw a, a short commercial there from a company called Cable Labs. And so I'm curious, with your company being Edgewater how you are related to Cable Labs. Uh, what, what is the relationship there so that we understand that? So uh, Cable Labs is the, the non-profit innovation and R&D engine for the, the global cable industry. Now, as, as part of Cable Labs, they have a, uh, an accelerator program called UpRamp, and we're al- an alumni of the UpRamp accelerator program. And the program is really designed to get new and emerging technologies introduced into the, the $500 billion cable industry. So it's been a, you know, a real um, extraordinary experience for us. And, and you know, Cable Labs is really the guiding hand bringing new technologies to that industry. All right. So some questions have come in in the chat. Jess, yes. you've got some for us? Yeah, well... Before I get to the chat room, I, I got my own question. Oh, okay. Yeah, All okay. right. Yeah. So before the break, uh, you mentioned that you know everybody's uh, looking for more speed, and with this kind of splitting, is there a limitation to the speed? Like I know you just mentioned, you know, at two point four, you get this many connections, or at the five gigahertz, you get this. Are we going to see a reduction in speed because there's more? Right. Is it proportional? Yeah. Or, yeah, or, or is question. the speed still going to be there even though you've added more uh, connectivity? Mm. Well, this is the interesting, the interesting thing, you know, as we, as we talk using Wi-Fi over video, the, the, the thing that impacts your video the most is not the speed of my connection or your connection. 
but it, it's the latency or the delay. Right. And and so by adding channels, we're we're actually la- like decreasing latency. We're offering a lower latency connection because there's fewer users on that channel. So huh. the speed, you know, is is sort of. You know, it, it's sort of that glittery, glittery object that the marketing people put out in front of you, but but your viewers and, yeah. and you know you and I know that it's actually the latency that that makes your video pixelate. Right. And so our focus is really reducing latency and offering hmm. that those those more more channels. Okay. It's a very interesting point, and I love that we're we're taking a real step away from uh, viewers. If you're noticing this, we're taking a step away from the marketing speak, mm-hmm. like the yeah. stuff that you hear, the stuff that you read on the back of your router box when you're standing in the big box store trying to pick which router you, to buy. <laughs> yeah. So we're stepping away from all that that says this is the fastest, this is the best, this is the one with five antennas, this is the one with eight antennas, right. and we're and we're saying, okay, well, this is what really matters to the user. Right. So is my Skype call going to drop? Is my YouTube video going to buffer? And if my kids are using their phones and their tablets and I've got the computer and my laptop on my lap, am I going to have buffering? Mm-hmm. Right. That's really what it comes down to because I don't care about the numbers. I really just care how does it work for me. Like the actual So yeah. then to draw that parallel to the highway, you still have the 100-kilometer limit for the highway. Sure. But you've now got 36 lanes to work with instead of two. Could you imagine? So, <laughs> so there's more yeah. cars yeah. that can How spread out. How fast could you get to Toronto? <laughs> <laughs> 36 lanes, I could go pretty fast <laughs> until the cops Even just on. without having to stop, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's, it's an interesting perspective. Yeah, I is. love it. It is. Now, I mean, as we're talking about this, I mean, we're sitting here, I'm hearing kind of, about the nuts and bolts of this for the first time. Mm. I'm getting excited, and the chat room's getting excited, too. I've got two people, uh, Bloki and Ameridroid, both going, can I get this now? What's it going to cost me, and how much can I get? Yeah, like, like where, do, where, yeah. where do I throw my dollars, yeah. my dollar-dollar <laughs> bills? Can I just, like, send those to you? <laughs> That's it. You know, that's ex- ex- exactly it. So for for us, you know, the, 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 the real catalyst to bringing this to market has been our, our work in the with the global cable providers. You know, right. we count uh, the fifth largest cable operator in the U.S., a company called Mediacom, as one of our customers. Uh, they're using us at resorts in areas that are that are really struggling with with density. Right. Uh, we're also working with four out of the top five largest cable operators in the world to bring our technology to market in in the home. Okay. And outside of the cable space, our, our largest customer to date is the second largest retailer in the U.S., a company called Kroger Corporation that builds their own access points for use in their stores. Wow. Right. So, you know, it's a, uh, it's a really exciting time for the company. That's okay. cool. So what I need to know is where does this technology stand from a licensing standpoint? I mean, we, people say, why are you called Linux Tech Show when you're always talking about Windows? And it's like, okay, well, we have a mindset here where we care about open source. We love open source. We love Linux. I want to know, like, is there, is this something that's going to be available to, um, to the open source community? Let's just put that out there. I know it's a loaded question. I'll leave that with you, Andrew. 
that's it, you know for for us the, the the Linux environment is extraordinary, right? The 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 reach and the the number of developers um, available and, and things is just phenomenal. So mm -hmm. what we've done um, through our work with Cable Labs on the emerging dual channel Wi-Fi standard. So that's really about taking multiple channels and terminating them on a device to offer significantly lower latency. Yeah. So we've actually taken that dual channel Wi-Fi code, um, which was which was you know co-innovated with Cable Labs, mm -hmm. and we've released that to the uh, the the Linux OpenWRT community. So that's available today that you can put on your routers and offer a dual channel capability. Okay. Okay. Now where that goes. Hold, hold, uh, just one second. Yeah! <laughs> Celebration! And wait. <laughs> one for you as well. Yes. <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt, but that it's had to be done. It's really cool stuff. So, yeah. you know, for, for us, you know, what's really exciting about that standard yes. is it, it's, it, it's taking, you know, the current Wi-Fi implementation and saying, you know what, you've got a primary channel, which is sort of your standard Wi-Fi channel. Yeah. And then for a latency-sensitive application, like your Roku or you know, your, your, your Xfinity box on your TV. Sure. Take that data and put it off on an uncontented channel. Hmm. Reduce the latency. So that oh. link becomes very, very solid. Are we almost, almost, almost touching on like a Wi-Fi specific channel? Like, I'm just throwing this out here, okay? I, we haven't had this discussion before. Is this almost like QoS, quality of service of Wi-Fi? Like saying, okay, your Roku is streaming video, so I want to give bandwidth oh. to that. Whereas your, your kid's chatting on Facebook isn't really needing as much bandwidth, so we can kind of say QoS says, let's give it mostly to the Roku. Is that kind of what we're, what we're having happen, that's, but at a channel right. level? That's right, and that's, that's really the power of, you know, the applications like dual-channel Wi-Fi yeah. and the platforms like Wi-Fi spectrum slicing. Like, like my house is a, a, you know, a, a great example. You know, um, my my kids are playing uh, Fortnite or whatever the game is. On probably probably Fortnite. Yeah. yeah. Probably, <laughs> exactly. I've got my own channel, nice and uncontended, and we've got you know our alarm system, our door uh, you know door oh. alerts, everything on their own you know low quality of service channel because they don't use a lot of bandwidth. But yeah. that's what it's really all about, and that's what you know, uh, Wi-Fi spectrum slicing opens up and applications <laughs> like dual channel Wi-Fi really take advantage of that. So all I got out of that entire statement was there is a dad channel. So with that splitting, is that something that in the back end firmware of your router, you'll be able to see those individual channels for your devices? We're used to that. Yeah. Right now. But are we going to see it on a more intricate level? Like, is that something we'll visually be able to see in the software or is it, is it happening kind of in the back end without us? Seeing it. Yeah, I'm seeing Blokey as well asking in our Discord there. Um, you see that over there asking if channels are selectable. Is this still going to be the case? 
That's, that's right. So one of the things that we've done in our, our line of access points, our ERA products, mm-hmm. um, which, which is all, also leverages Linux, um, is we've left it very open. So the channels are all software configurable. And, you know, today's version, you can go in, you can select your channels. We're layering on AI applications, which will help you choose channels that are uncontended or Mm. don't have interference, right, to deliver the maximum quality of service to the demanding application. And, you know, in addition to these multiple channels, the other thing that we've included with our our Wi-Fi spectrum slicing approach is real-time spectral surveillance, right? Look at the spectrum, see where the interference is, deal with that interference real-time without interrupting your transmit and receive. Wow. I'm, I'm getting chills. This is like well, answering so many problems I've got at all. Andrew, <laughs> we love you. I mean, I just have to, just plain and simple, because okay, I'm, I'm already dealing with, like, I sit down with DDWRT and with my, my microtick, and I, I watch those channels, and I'm looking for, okay, well, what are my neighbors using? I want to find the channels that are, that are not currently bombarded with data trans- transfer yeah. so that I'm not working on a channel that is already saturated. I want to be I want to have my home Wi-Fi on a network that on a on a channel that is basically wide open. Yeah. That's it. So so you're saying that your technology is going to kind of monitor that and figure it out through some kind of brilliant technique at figuring out which channels plural hold on to that for a second. So yeah. channels we're able to tap into for our Wi-Fi. That's right. That's right. <gasps> this, this You're so, so exciting. calm. You're oh my show. God. Yeah. yeah, he's just like, he's like boom, yeah. mic drop, done. <laughs> That's it. Wow. <laughs> okay, I love this. I had no idea where this interview was going, folks, but now I'm like, okay, so the question now becomes, Andrew, like, I, okay, I, I've got my routers. I've already invested in my hardware. Where does it go from here? How do I get this? Can it, is this something that I have to buy new hardware for? Do I need to recreate my business infrastructure, my home infrastructure? Please give me some information on that. With, with Wi-Fi spectrum slicing, that's, yeah. that's actually chip-based, so okay. you do need new hardware for that. Yeah. Um, for applications like dual-channel Wi-Fi and the, the emerging dual-channel Wi-Fi standard, there are some devices which, which can support dual-channel in 2.4 and 5 gig. So they, they can spread, they, they have to separate them. Okay. But it's still, you know, it really shows the direction that Wi-Fi is going for sure. So is there hardware that we should be specifically looking at to, to be able to implement your technique? Or um, is there somewhere we can go to find out more information where we can shop for devices that are going to be supporting this particular Absolutely. method? Absolutely. There's a couple places you should go and check out. Okay. Check out uh, edgewaterwireless.com. All right, that's you. Under the, the dual channel Wi-Fi application yeah. and uh, Wi-Fi spectrum slicing to learn more about that. Okay. And um, a great resource is the, the Cable Labs website under dual channel Wi-Fi. So there's some great information there on the benefits and the techniques for doing that. Okay. And you can actually go to GitHub and you can download the OpenWRT software. Okay, what I'm going to get you to do, that is fantastic. Okay, OpenWRT is a router firmware you can install on your existing 
router. So, Andrew, what I want you to do is just after the show, I want you to private message me that link. And what I'm going to do for you viewers is if you're watching this on demand, if you're watching this on cable TV, it's okay. Just go to our website, category5.tv. You'll find episode number uh, 624. And I'm going to have that link there. If you're watching this on demand, if you're watching this on YouTube or wherever you are, uh, just check below in the description. I'm going to have that link for you. So, Andrew, I'm going to share that GitHub link so that people can get a hold of that OpenWRT as well. Um, how soon? So, OpenWRT is available now, it sounds like. How soon are we going to see this technology available um, basically on a grand scale? On a, on a grand scale, so for Edgewater Wireless, the yeah. next step in our evolution is really to, to license Wi-Fi spectrum slicing to some of the big silicon manufacturers, uh, the likes of Qualcomm, Broadcom, etc. Yep. And that will bring that the mass scale that all your viewers want to see. Oh, fantastic. Well, th Andrew, thank you so very much for your time. Uh, a reiteration that the website to go to is edgewaterwireless.com. Links are below and uh, find out more information about that. I love where you're going with this technology and uh, I need to get this in my home. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I want this here at the studio. Yeah, at the studio. <laughs> yes, that would be probably a good idea. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for being with us here uh, this week. It's been a pleasure. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for having me. Cheers. We've got to head over to the newsroom. Sasha, if you're ready, I'm going to throw it over to you. All right. We're covering this week in the Category 5.TV newsroom. The co-founder and chief executive of Twitter had his own account on the service briefly taken over by hackers. Microsoft has announced that it's bringing its XFAT file system support to the Linux kernel and the licensing the contributed code under GPL version 2. The rash of ransomware infiltration continues with 13 new victims, most of them schools. And a watchdog has penalized the local authority for trialing facial recognition on, a, on high school students in Sweden to keep track of their attendance. These stories are coming right up. Don't go anywhere. This is the Category 5.TV Newsroom, covering the week's top tech stories with a slight Linux bias. I'm Sasha Rickman, and here are the top stories we're following this week. The co-founder and chief executive of Twitter had his own account on the service briefly taken over by hackers. A group referring to itself as the Chuckling Squad said that it was behind the breach of D Jack Dorsey's account. The profile, which has more than 4 million followers, tweeted out a flurry of highly offensive and racist remarks for about 15 minutes. Twitter says its own systems were not compromised. Instead, they blame an unnamed phone service provider, saying, quote, the phone number associated with the account was compromised due to a security oversight by the mobile provider. This allowed an unauthorized person to compose and send tweets via text message from the phone number. That issue is now resolved, end quote. A source at the company confirmed that the hacker had used a technique known as SIM swapping or SIM jacking in order to control Mr. Dorsey's account. This isn't the first SIM swapping account we've reported on. You may remember several months ago when we talked about how an AT&T allowed an attacker to steal Bitcoin.
Sim swapping itself is most often a social engineering attack on its onset. It allows an existing phone number, in this case one associated with Mr. Dorsey's account, to be transferred to a new SIM card. It's usually after the attackers trick or bribe customer support staff at a mobile provider to make the switch. In this case, by taking control of the number, the attackers were able to post tweets via text message directly onto Mr. Dorsey's Twitter account. While the security lapse appears to have happened outside the company, it is still an embarrassing incident for or Twitter. Mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, I get that it's kind of an embarrassing thing for Twitter, but at the same time, it's not their fault. So they say. Well, no, but I mean, <laughs> no, but I mean sim hacking is... I'm like, okay, well, that was some good brandy. And <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, like, it does happen. I mean, at the end of the day, that is a vulnerable vulnerability within yeah. the cell phone system. I mean, and it does happen Right. All the time. We may not so realize that. Should we just <clears throat> assume that everybody who tweets obnoxiously unrealistic and ridiculous tweets probably have been sim swapped? And they're not actually speaking on their own? <laughs> no. That not that we're pointing any fingers. Not that we're pointing any fingers. No, but I mean, at this, yeah. but I mean how, like, as a company like Twitter, yeah. how do you protect against something like that? The only way you. I, I mean, I, You'd have I to turn know. off SMS messaging. Well, but yeah. not only that is maybe something built into the account where it's like, oh, we're detecting suddenly a change in your IP address. Like, I don't know. If it's not really possible, to... though, is it, Jeff? With, with but if you're switching to a different phone, you'd have a different IP? Yeah, but you'd have a different IP if you traveled from this end of Barry to the other end of Barry. But, so but if you're, you're on using a, a cell phone that's you not just... connected to Wi-Fi, you still have your IP. But this is SMS. Yeah, okay, so fair enough. But let's rule out IP addressing. Yeah. So not really the issue because it's not internet-based, so it's not that's a very internet protocol, <laughs> right? So you, you just have to just never let your phone out of your sight. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It wasn't out of his sight. So here's the thing. Is somebody uh -huh. knew Mr. Dorsey's phone, phone number. number. Right. So this was this an inside job? I, if I wanted to hack his account, I don't know his personal cell phone number. Do you? It's probably Who does? Not that hard. This is yeah, but this is the co-founder of Twitter, right? right? So think about and that for a second. How many people have his contact? How many times have we had data breaches of contact yeah. information? All the contact lists out is there. Is that it? Is Maybe. it a data breach? Is it Maybe. like his LinkedIn account was compromised? Who knows? But it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I'm sure my cell phone number's out there, and it's like nobody needs my cell phone number. If anyone would like to tweet as Jeff Weston, just check the data banks on the black web. <laughs> Go and, to the dark uh, web. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that it happened, but at the same time, I'm going, at least it wasn't a security breach. It wasn't something that sure. rocks the foundation of Twitter where people are like, oh my gosh. But doesn't it, right. I mean, doesn't it bring us back to, okay, SIM swapping is a very serious issue. Yeah. And we talked about, you remember the conversation, the you mentioned it. Yes. Yeah, AT&T, where somebody walked in. So a hacker, or we used to call them frackers. So yeah. do you remember back in the day when we were frackers, where we would um, send a post uh, a piece of mail, a piece of postage um, to somebody, mm -hmm. but we would put their address in the from address and then not include postage. Yep. So then, of course, the post office would then send it back to who it was from because there was yes. insufficient postage. Right. But the from was actually the person we're sending it to. And that that is out. what we called <laughs> fracking. And, and, you know, that happened with um, pay phones where right. we had devices that you could make a certain tone and make your phone calls for free at a pay phone. Like, that was fracking. So now is this the modern equivalent of fracking where we can walk into AT&T and say, 
My name's Sasha Rickman, and my phone number is such and such. Right. And uh, I lost my phone, so I need you to give me, give a, me a new SIM. Right? So then this new SIM card now goes in my phone, and now I can dial... I can authenticate. I can two-factor authenticate against Sasha's accounts. Yep. Because I am her phone number, so I can receive SMS. Right. That's some scary stuff. Think about that as you think about what kind of two-factor authentication you have on your accounts. Mm-hmm. And then think somebody could do that. And it's only if the cell provider falls for that social engineering attack. But the fact is, we talked about AT&T, how they're not adequately training their Mm -hmm. workers Mm -hmm. to be prepared for social engineering. So is there a benefit to having profile photos for customer service reps? For stuff like that. It's like, hey, you've got a cell phone. By the way, we've got a... We want to put a picture on file so nobody else can come in and do say, they do I'm so and so. Sure. Like, no, I, but, but you know what? But like, how do you like get away from that? Like bank security. Maybe you should have to have your own bank, personal pin. No, because I used to walk into the bank and withdraw money as my brother. I'm sorry, Brad. I know. I actually, I worked at a bank and, oh my goodness. <laughs> I, it's what, all I needed to be. Are you guys twins? No, no, that's the thing. As long as you know enough to be able to answer those security questions, you can do it. Right, but okay. That's the thing. Since that point, now you bring in your card, you put it into the reader, and you pop in the pin. Yeah, that's a little bit better. Mm. But it it can all be compromised. So do we need? Do we almost need? And this is a rhetorical, but do we need two-factor authentication on our two-factor authentication? Do we need to have thumbprints in order to authenticate against our two-factor authentication? Right. Do we need to have that added feature of, okay, well, your phone, okay, you lost your SIM? No problem. Uh, Your phone was set up with fingerprint identification. Can we have your fingerprint, please? Right? Like, can that be... You can, it's very rhetorical because the technology fingerprints. Their fingerprints. But I would if I lost my SIM. Right. And if a hacker came in and said, I'm Robbie Ferguson and I need a new SIM for my phone, yeah. well, if they don't have my fingerprint, wouldn't I like that peace of mind to know that they cannot regenerate a new SIM card? I just wonder if what we're dealing with at that point is people's heightened level of suspicion where they're like, oh, I'm not giving my fingerprints to AT&T. Who knows what they're going to do with it? But also, I understand that that would work as a security measure. But there's also that flip side of that, Sasha. And I know you want to move on. That's my way of saying I want to move on. (laughs) There's that flip side of it that says, well, I... If I... um, if I, if I am providing my identification, well, th- they can't authenticate as me. Right. I don't want them to be able to authenticate as me. And, and if they do, I don't want them to be able to compromise my accounts. Mm-hmm. Is the information you're providing to AT&T being stored properly and in a, in a secure That's way? You That's just don't thing. know. Yeah, exactly. I just... So many questions. You know, not enough answers. I mean, even in this okay. scenario, it still I comes down to human answers. error. We are not Somebody going to Okay, that's what, I, that's what I kind of felt like I wanted to yes. touch on. Thank you, Jeff. We're, we're not going to solve this in just... Is that it? We can't fix... If we no, fix we human error right here on the show, we could I want do a paycheck. That. <laughs> <laughs> so as long as the cell phone provider, I think this is where Jeff would go with this, right? As long as the cell phone provider gives their staff the capability, the authority to be able to SIM swap, 
Yep. We have a security breach yes. possibility. Always. Always. Okay. So when we think about that, so as long as I'm that not saying is switch to robot customer service reps. No, but if the if the if those staff members that are working in a mall kiosk have right. the capability to sim swap Sasha's phone to me for minimum wage. Yeah. Yeah. There's a problem with there that. Needs, yeah. Maybe sure. it's not an education thing, but maybe it's an, uh, uh, what level of security should certain levels of staff have? Maybe right. is that the issue? And what level of accountability? Because, I mean... Somebody, well, there is none. When you're a minimum yeah, wage, exactly. I mean, oh, sorry, like, oh, well, you know, fire me, I'll move on to the next kiosk, right? Exactly. Ah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, okay. speaking of moving on. Sorry, Sasha. <laughs> Sorry about that. Microsoft has announced that it's bringing its XFAT file system support to the Linux kernel and licensing the contributed code under GPL version 2. Microsoft's XFAT file system is prevalent throughout a lot of modern technology, regardless of whether you or your device use the Windows operating system. This simple but proprietary and patented file system was created by Microsoft for use primarily in flash memory products back in 2006. Since then, the format has seen colossal adoption throughout the electronics industry with USB drivers, SD cards, digital cameras, and mp3 players among the many many devices that make use of it however to use the file system means paying microsoft a fee until now it's long been possible to read write manage edit resize and format xfat partitions and file systems on linux distros thanks to source efforts like the fuse based xfat but patent issues have prevented these workaround solutions from shipping as part of the regular Linux kernel, out of the box, ready to go. But now Microsoft is lifting the restrictions and releasing the code that will allow XFAT to be included in the kernel with no fees and nobody getting sued. Okay, I love this. You know yeah. why? Why? My video recorder for screencasting doesn't support XFAT for this very reason, because of the patents. Right. So now we're going to see a transition in the technology that says, okay, well, now that it's freely available on the Linux kernel, and most of these, these devices, let's be honest, are powered by Linux. Mm-hmm. Yep. We may not realize, even if you're a Windows user, you may not realize that your, your phone and, and many of your devices in your right. household are Linux-based. So this now says, okay, well, that recorder that records to my disk uh, USB flash drive when I do screencasts can support XFAT? Yep. For free? Yep. Yes. That opens well, up a whole you. new world. Well, yeah. Thank you, Windows. Microsoft is finally supporting the open source. I wondered how this was going to go because Microsoft professed several years ago, we had this discussion about how they were going to be becoming more and more open source centric. Yes, well, it's they very did say weird. They're the ones that bought GitHub, right? They did. So, yes. I mean, it would be difficult for them to say, we've got GitHub, but we're not in favor of open source. Turn it all off. Password yeah. protect the whole <laughs> yeah, thing. Exactly. <laughs> wah, wah. Yeah. yeah, which is an interesting purchase in and of itself. But yes. now they have access to the world's source code. Yes. In such a way that, you know, they can adopt that into their own code base. That mm-hmm. was a, yeah, it was a smart move for them. Sure. And sure so it was is. this. So <laughs> Yes. <laughs> That's right. 
The rash of ransomware infiltration continues with 13 new victims, most of them schools. Yes, that's right. As investigations into the recent coordinated ransomware attack against local governments in Texas continues, 13 new victims of ransomware attacks have been publicly identified. Besides schools, the victims also include an Indiana County, a hospice in California, in California a newspaper in Waterton, New York. The ransomware involved in the Texas attacks, which hit 22 local-level government entities, has not yet been identified. Multiple sources have suggested that the Texas attacker gained access through a managed service provider that the local governments had all in common, but that it has not yet that has not yet been confirmed by state officials. In the case of this latest batch of attacks, Ryuk ransomware has been identified as the malware used on at least three occasions. The Rockville Center School District initially received a ransom demand of $176,000. The district's insurance company negotiated with the ransomware operator, reducing the payout to $88,000, and the school district paid a deductible of $10,000. There's no word on whether other victims have paid the ransom yet. As new attacks become public, it's worth remembering the fallout from such attacks can add up quickly in terms of dollars and requires a lengthy recovery period. The leadership of Baltimore City, hit by a ransom attack in May, recently announced that $6 million of the money needed to cover the city's more than $10 million ransomware cleanup operation would be pulled from funds earmarked earmarked for upkeep of city parks and public facilities. So far, the Robinhood ransomware cost the city over $8 million in lost revenue and interest on deferred revenue. Baltimore has also been considering a contract for $20 million of cyber liability insurance plan. Uh, yep, exactly. Yeah. What? Okay. Uh. Are you angry, Jeff? Are you angry, Baltimore residents? What bothers me? Take your kids to the park, and, and as the swing hangs from one chain, ask yourself, was this worth it? Like, I, I mean, the whole story just kind of grinds my gears, but mm -hmm. that last little statement that they're thinking of buying $20 million in cybersecurity insurance. How, many how, ab how about IT a backup? staff... <laughs> and and proper backups and everything oh could twenty gosh. million get them? Like this is where I want to throw my pen and walk off. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? See you, Jeff. <laughs> Have a great night. Baltimore, look at what you've done. We've lost a great co host. <laughs> I can't I can't say enough. Okay. All y'all just need to watch the show. <laughs> you just why are you doing these things in such a way that will affect, like, not only you and the, and the services, but then the people beyond? A hospice? Like, a yeah. hospice now. Mm -hmm. Do, obviously, these aren't targeted attacks, but it just it blows my mind. We'll call them targeted. What, they will. Right. Then when they get the FBI involved in the insurance companies, they'll call it targeted. But I think to myself, like, schools... It's stupidity is what it is. Yeah. Oh. Anyway. What really jabs my butt about this, Jeff, is it seems apparent. I mean, if I'm going to pay $88,000 to a ransomware individual or group... So this is a, a group that just simply installed a program that encrypted their files. 
If I'm going to pay $88,000, how much do you want to bet I didn't spend $5,000 on my backup that year? Yep. Right. Okay. So think about that. These are the very folks that are running our government. Mm-hmm. And we have a really serious misallocation of tax dollars. But again, going back to, uh, you know, news stories just a few minutes ago, that's human error. Like, I feel like when it comes to proper IT support and cybersecurity and malware protection and everything in between, there's that element of, you just didn't do it. Come on. And it's tough. I'm not going to come down hard on the IT folks because I'm in IT and I know. They've got a budget line. No, but they also can only make recommendations, Jeff. Yep. Oh, yeah. No, and no, it takes that. going through bureaucracy f- through multiple levels in order to get approval for something that we're stressing needs to happen now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look, 10 years ago now. Yeah. <laughs> Wake up, people. <sighs> so when they pay the ransom... They're still at risk for future attacks. Oh, sure they are. Completely. Did we, did we inoculate the issue? No. Did we patch the systems with that fee? No. So the IT crew still has to take care of the cleanup. Mm-hmm. Still has to, what are we going to do? Pay $88,000 and trust the hackers not to hack again? Right. No, the back doors are still there. Exactly. Yeah. At that point. All they've done is given you a key for $88,000. Here's your decryption key. 256 bits of text. More. Right. Yeah. Oh, of course it does. <sighs> yeah, these these aren't our average. And the sad thing is, I, I'll say it's not a, your your normal good guy. But sad thing is, a lot of cases, these are teenage kids mm-hmm. that just simply don't know any better, and they just made eighty eight thousand dollars off the government, and they're thinking, oh my gosh, payload. Yeah. I figured out I figured out a way to make tons of cash. And then they'll go to jail eventually when they're twenty six years old and and find themselves at the mercy of the government and not understand well They don't understand the lives they affected. Yeah. And it's not fair to them. It's not fair like kids growing up and Mm -hmm. when I was a kid I was a hacker and doing I was doing malicious things, but not anything damaging. I didn't ever do anything that couldn't be undone. Mm-hmm. And I didn't charge anyone a fee to undo it. But I still but had to have, have a stern talking to. Oh, sure. I yeah. had to have a stern talking to at school. And as kids are growing up now, I mean, they're way more advanced than I was in my age. Oh, because gosh, technology yes. is there from the moment they're born. Right. So <sighs> this is a dangerous thing that they're setting by... Hey, let's pay $88,000. No. Pay your IT department to give you proper backups, proper encryption. Turn off RDP, you idiots. <laughs> Lock down your firewalls. Right. Yeah. Comment below. <laughs> Look, just comment And guess below. what? We have more news. Uh, oh, do we? We do. Please tell me it's good news, Sasha. <laughs> yeah. A watchdog has penalized a local authority for trialing facial recognition on high school students in Sweden to keep track of attendance. The Swedish Data Protection Authority, or DPA, fined the Skala... 
Skelefti municipality the equivalent of about $20,000 US for ignoring a privacy law. The trial involved tracking 22 students over three weeks and detecting when each pupil entered a classroom. This is the first time that Sweden has ever issued a fine under the GDPR. The General Data Protection Regulation, which came into force last year, classes facial images and other biometric information as being a special category of data with added restrictions on its use. The DPA indicated that the fine would have been bigger had the trial been longer. According to technology magazine Computer Sweden, Swedish authorities decided to investigate after reading media reports of Anderstops High School's trial. The local authority told the Swedish state broadcaster SVT Nider in February that teachers had been spending 17,000 hours a year reporting attendance. And the authority had decided to see whether facial recognition technology could speed up the process. The trial, which took place in autumn of 2018, had been so successful that the local authority was considering extending it. Although the school secured parents' con consent to monitor the students, the regulator did not feel that it was legally adequate reason to collect such sensitive personal data. It said that there was a less intrusive ways that their attendance could have been detected without involving camera surveillance. As a result, the DPA found that Skelefti's local authority had unlawfully possessed sensitive biometric data and failed to complete an adequate impact assessment, which would have included consulting the regulator and gaining prior approval before starting the trial. Okay, so they're not saying they can't do it. They're saying that they didn't get the, the proper, proper okay. Well, that was -okay. Part, of, part of it. Like, they, that's some of the stuff they could have done. But, like, why not just go to the good old try-and-true system of swipe cards or... RFID, like it can always be, it can no, always be, but I mean, forged, like, right? Well, fair enough, but I mean, I've got one of these, and if it was a yeah, but I'll take yours and pretend that you were at school today. Sure, fair I'll enough. Scan everybody. So there's, there's going to be some manipulation, but at least they're not Just... causing problems. I mean, if if my school said, or my kid's school sent home a letter that says we're going to be using facial recognition to track your kid's attendance, yeah, I'd probably blow a gasket. You don't say. So yeah. would okay. actually, I would. How much does a teacher make these days? Not very much. 70-ish? Mm, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well, let's say by the hour. Let's look at the hourly. No, Is it teachers? 26. 26 bucks an hour? More? No, it's got to be more than that. 32? Well, they have... $37 they have an hour. I will give you the job for 37 bucks an hour. They have eight weeks unpaid in the year that I'm Oh, my gosh. We're in. getting too technical. Okay. They don't make a lot of money. Teachers, comment below. How much should you make and how much do you make an hour? Let's just make. say, can we say 28 bucks an hour? Yes. Just uh, as, a, that's low, as a base rate for somebody starting out. And if you get paid less than that, you need to talk to your employer. Right. 17,000 hours at $28 per hour is... $476,000 U.S. Yeah. Wow. At 28 bucks an hour. So you're telling me, oh, they probably get paid more than that. Right. So with the amount of time that these teachers are spending simply saying, hey, Jeff, are you here? Hey, Jeff. Hey, Jeff, are you here? Bueller. Come on, answer me, dude. Uh, why? See, facial recognition would have been a lot quicker. Yeah. Would have saved me time here. and would have saved my school board and my tax-paying citizens 500000 U.S. dollars this year. So think about that 
in comparison with the privacy issue of parents who say, like you say, I have a problem with a computer knowing that my kid is at school. Yep. But the computer knows anyways whether my teacher tells the computer or not. Mm-hmm. I, I still think there's other ways rather I, than having to go with facial recognition. But hear me, Jeff. The computer, I, I I just don't the computer knows anyways. Okay, as soon about, as the teacher says, yeah, Jeff finally answered the question, I just made another $500,000, right? Mm-hmm. And so I checked the box and I sent it to the computer and now the computer knows that you're there anyways. Right, so the automated calling system can call home if you are Exactly, there. that's exactly how it works. At the end of the day, sorry, Jeff was truant. Oh, right. Okay, so now you've so got you heard that way too many records. times. Actually, you never. Sorry, I didn't mean to bring that back to you. Parents, if if your parents are watching, they that just really brought them back to. But I mean, like, how many times? Like, wh- so your twins, twins go to the same school. You, like, okay, there's, there's fair enough. With it, there's there, there will are be issues. I'm sure there, there are. are. Like, there's identity challenges. But, but that happened. Admit it. Admit it. That's happening anyways with the teachers. Sure. Have you never? Oh, again, my twin sister. Another did it. story. Yes. They exactly. had identification bracelets that they swapped sure. one day just to be each other. Absolutely, they yeah. did. They identification changed outfits. They're identical twins. So Guaranteed. One had one that said bath, and one had one that said Colleen. You know what's yeah. funny? I've yet to meet a set of identical twins that don't in some way look different. Well, yeah, they, but you they have look to different know them now, to but know. when they're like four years old, sure, yeah. right? They look mm-hmm. rude, similar. I, yeah, I, I, I still think this is bad idea i i know that the world is going that way so like well that's I'm it not too, a nation. Jeff. Like, i get that it's going that way i mean how long have we had facial recognition in casinos like i get it yeah. but the difference is we're talking adults versus children but the adults okay were that's fair like the, there was yeah. consent given there was parental i don't i don't consent. care though it's the fact that a parent can make an improper decision with the information that has been supplied about their child like i i struggle with it i understand that but I still feel that we as a society have to move on from our old ways in that I still believe that whether it's a human that mm-hmm. says, Sasha's in class today, right. or a computer that says, Sasha's in class today, the same algorithms, the same systems are in place to notify mom and dad whether you were truant or not. It's mm-hmm. still the same system. It's just a different detection mechanism that can save our taxpaying citizens $500,000 a year. Are well, fingerprints I, as precious as facial recognition? Probably. Uh, I would say I was, they're the same. Like, scan you your fingerprint? Scan a finger sure. and put in a code? Maybe that's the answer? The, right. probably is that still fair? The same Parents, what do you As think? far as the biometric... Yeah, it probably is. I've it's worked like, at places where you put your whole hand on the reader yeah. and then you clock in your own code. That'd be awesome. Hand You're an adult. My kids, uh, if my kids get that in their school, I'm yeah. sending them to school in suits with sunglasses. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dead serious. Oh, but then yeah. they wouldn't have fingerprints. Oh, yes. Right, men in black. Nice. <laughs> Nicely okay. played, sir. Okay, let's l- take a quick look at the cryptocurrency market. Now, there is one coin that has been holding so steady over the past several weeks, and it's just mind-boggling how it can be holding so steady. No, it's not. Facebook Libra is still trading at zero dollars because it's not even trading yet. Yeah, but we're it's still be, waiting for it. It's going to be a positive week. We Jeff, won. Sasha made that comment last week. I'm so Facebook excited. Libra, when it hits, going it's up. going up. You know it's going up because right now it's a zero point zero zero fiat. That's the one I don't want to get. Bitcoin. And I saw 
a kiosk, an ATM that allows me to it. buy. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, good. I walked, yes. but uh, not in the mall. I walked oh. into a convenience store. Yep. And oh. I said, Bitcoin ATM? <laughs> and the guy looked at me and he said, yep. I bought this store because I bought a single Bitcoin when they were down. <gasps> and I sold it when they were up. And now I own this convenience store. How much did it cost you? One. Yeah, nothing. Like <laughs> virtually nothing. So this, this gentleman bought this convenience store that I'm standing in. And so by his own like realization that, hey, this is where the future is, he has an ATM in the convenience store that only sells there's a bunch of them in Toronto. Yeah, Bitcoin. that's so cool. Yeah. I love it. So neat. So we're going to take a look at that. I'm going to go in with my inconspicuous filming glasses or check something your balance? and take a look at that. I don't really know how it works yet, Jeff. Okay. But we're going to take a look. Uh, Bitcoin is up. Well, kind of back up where it was a couple of weeks ago, but at $10,615.93, gaining uh, $939.65 U.S. over the past week. Litecoin is holding pretty steady at $67.59 fiat uh, USD. Ethereum is at one seventy-five seventy, and things are really holding about where they were last week. Monero at seventy-two forty-seven. I mean, the difference is only thirty-four cents. It's not really anything significant unless you own a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Scala, which is mm-hmm. Torque, which is Stellite, is at zero point six six ten thousandths of a cent. So it's on its way back up to where it was. It was doing quite well as why the name Torque. Torque. I think patents and trademarks yeah. and... They forgot to check whether anybody yeah. else had it. <laughs> that, Whoops. That's going to hurt the coin, I think. It really did. It, it did dropped. It dropped last yeah. week, oh, Jeff, know, yeah. down to 0.45 ten thousandths of a cent. But it went back up again to 0.66 yeah. this week. So it's working its way back up, and it's already exceeded mm-hmm. and, in fact, doubled that of the turtle coin. Um, turtle coin is pretty steady. I mean, it did lose. It's the only loser this week at uh, 0.39 ten thousandths of a cent. But, again, I mean, Scala... And TurtleCoin are both microcoins. So if you want to get involved in cryptocurrency mining, it's a great way to get involved because it doesn't really cost you anything. I do it on a Pi. To get, yeah, you do it on a Raspberry Pi at like nine hashes a second. But, yeah. I mean, you still are building up your TurtleCoin, yeah. right? So it happens. And, and so that's the way to do it. But do remember, if you are going to crypto mine or if you're going to purchase, I mean, we talk about this ATM at the convenience store. If you're going to buy Bitcoin or you're going to invest in cryptocurrency remember that the market never closes and it's always volatile so it's always changing you can go to bed at night thinking oh i'm doing really good bitcoins up and the next day it is down that's right because it never ever closes it's not like your stock exchange folks so be mindful that uh you know our recommendation here at category 5 technology tv is to only invest only spend what you can afford to lose yes that's the only way to play yeah yeah, invest the money you don't want any longer. <laughs> yeah. Basically, you're just throwing it in or the just wind, give it to folks. Us. We'll take exactly. it. Yeah, you can give it to us. That's that's fine, too. We should add that. Should we add that to the cryptocurrency to, report? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yes. Okay, yeah, making notes. Yeah. Okay, yes. remember, children, the cryptocurrency market never closes. It's always volatile, and you can donate to us instead. <laughs> that's right. <laughs>
<laughs> Big thanks to Roy W. Nash and our community of viewers for submitting stories to us this week. Thanks for watching the Category 5.TV newsroom. Don't forget to like and subscribe for all your tech news with a slight Linux bias. And for more free content, be sure to check out our website. From the Category 5.TV newsroom, I'm Sasha Rickman. And I'm Robbie Ferguson. And I'm Jeff Weston. Hey, thanks for being here with us tonight. Now, we're trying to put a real focus on the Linux terminal. And yes. tonight, we're going to be showing you how to travel through time in Debian Linux. Stick around. Welcome back to Category 5 Technology TV. It's time to do some time traveling. Oh, I love. Linux. You know what? It, it, could you imagine? Time travel is here. We finally have access. I would tell to myself to start working out 25 years ago. <laughs> Go back in time. <laughs> and that's, that's what you would thing. tell? Yeah, work out. Yeah. That's yep. the okay. thing. That's, that's the thing. That's good. That's good. No, like, no other that regrets Bitcoin in life. That's fantastic, Jeff. It's good to it. hear. <laughs> that's what Bitcoin I was around If that's your ago. only regret, then you're basically like the happiest guy alive, which is fantastic. I am. That's really good. Um, okay, so what we're looking at this week is time travel through Debian Linux. So have you ever had a scenario where you're like, oh, I just wish... Debian Wheezy was still available, or PHP 5.3 was still available, or any of these old packages. Because what happens is, we, we love Debian's apt. Mm -hmm. You know apt-get. Yes. And the ability to install new packages and do an apt-update, and then an apt-upgrade, and all of a sudden your system is up and running with the latest and greatest, right? Mm -hmm. But what happened to the old stuff? Right. It's gone. It's gone. What happens if you need it? What if you have some kind of technology or product or program that requires that old software, and then you're in this bind where now it's not available. It's gone. Mm -hmm. Especially if you're in a scenario where, let's say you had a piece of software developed. Custom software is a great example. Yes. We'll pay a development company to build software for us. It might cost us $20,000. And then the technology moves on. Mm -hmm. It was built on Debian Jesse, let's say, as the scenario. And then we went through upgrade after upgrade. And now here we are. Debian Buster is stable, ladies and gentlemen. We're on Debian 10. And now our software that we paid $20,000 for is no longer compatible. And we can't install it. We can't run it. It no longer works. So we have this real bind where, hey, I can't run this software. I really need to run this software. Why wouldn't you just go find an old, like, software package? Wouldn't that be just great? But there's dependencies, Jeff. Mm -hmm. uh, right? Like, when you install anything on Debian, there's going to be things that it depends on in order to install, and in order to be able to function correctly. Yeah. Right? So, um, a good example... Not like just pulling out your old CD. No, it's not, it's yeah. not at all like no. that. And the and fact is, maybe there's a scenario where we have an old server. Maybe right. I've got an old server and I want to move things into a virtualization hypervisor because I know that that old server is on its way out or it's using too much hydro or electricity right. for those American viewers. Uh, we call high electricity hydro here in Canada. Right. I don't know why. It's water. Water? Because it started with water, water generators, hydroelectric. And so we stuck with it. Yeah, yeah. we've just never, you know. The more you know, 
See, we learned something here tonight, so we can end the show on that note. Um, I totally just made it up. <laughs> it makes sense. It makes sense I'm to me, Jeff. I'm great at Balderdash. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. We'll be playing that after the show. Uh, so what happens in that, can- in that scenario? So yeah. I want to tell you a little bit about a feature of Debian that you may not have heard of. It's called Snapshots. Well, we've heard of snapshots. Yeah. Yeah, We've heard of snapshots. Did you know that Debian's repositories have snapshots? And they have since 2005. So if you want to go back in time or you want to lock your repositories on your distribution to a certain point in time, you can use snapshots. I had no clue. Nice. How? Well, I'll show you that, Sasha. Okay. You see how she's like driving the conversation. All right, let's jump. Let's jump. Yeah. <laughs> if she's like, it's winding down. This is the end of the show. Let's make it happen, Robbie. Okay, so I'm gonna jump in. I'm gonna type sudo sue, and it's prompting me for my password. <laughs> what is it? What's so funny, Sasha? Oh, you were here last week. <laughs> oh no, but I read. I heard about it. I heard about the great password reveal of 2019. Oh, oh look, I entered my password. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to go into cd slash etc slash apt, and let's nano sources.list. Okay, my sources.list is pretty much empty. There's a commented out cd-rom drive, so that means that there is a folder called sources.list.d. And in that folder, and and everyone has this on Debian. Um, Now, I, I should give you this one little caveat. I'm actually on Linux Mint. So this is an Ubuntu derivative, but... Ubuntu is based on Debian, so I'm still able to demonstrate this, but this demonstration should really only be run on Debian Linux, like a true Debian uh, system. So now I'm going to create a new package list, so I'm going to go nano, uh, and I'm going to call this, let's call it snapshot. Snapshot.list has to end with .list. And with that ready to go. I'm going to jump into my web browser and I'm going to head on over to a wonderful website. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. Nice and easy. Snapshot.debian.org and jump onto there. So here we are Ooh. at the Debian Snapshot repository. We all know about repositories, but this is the snapshot where every six hours, Debian, since 2005, has been taking snapshots of the existing repositories. So hey, That's a ton of yeah, snapshots. exactly. Great so you thought. need Thank to, you. and deduplication is their friend. I'll tell you what. Um, but if you need to, let's say you've got software that you want to virtualize, you want to put it on a virtual appliance. Well, hey, set a snapshot as the repository, and it will never progress beyond that point. It will never. You never have to fear it upgrading beyond that point. It's always going to be locked down to that very point in time. So let's jump over here. So I'm going to go to slash archive slash Debian, and you'll see all the dates, 2005 all the way up to 2019 and September. So let's say I want to go back. Let's say, because I'm on Buster, right? Let's pretend. Um, I want to jump back to oh i apologize there we are with the right screen i'm going to go back to january so 2019 can you folks see that i'll zoom in just a little bit on my browser with control plus um 2019 so if i wanted to lock into january of this year now it gives me all the snapshots for that 
like by date. Look at this, folks. So I can actually go back to January 1st at 2.59 a.m. I can go back to January 1st at 8.56 a.m. I can go back to any of these times at snapshot.debian.org. So let's say, I, let's just pretend vicariously we're going to choose uh, 2019-01-06 at 2100 hours. Okay? Sounds great. That's what I'm going to choose. So I've just clicked on it. Now it's just a bunch of gibberish. Whatever. Copy the address line. Okay? That's going to give me the repository, and that is date stamped to the one that I chose, which is January 6th, 2019. You can go back. Remember, you can go back to 20, uh, 2005, March. Okay? You can go all the way back to 2005. Now, in that file that I created, sources.list.d in slash etc slash apt, see the... Uh, can you guys see the address bar? I'm just yes. going to bring it down just a little bit so that you can see that. Beautiful. Let's see. Boom. There it is. So that's the location, slash etc, slash apt, slash sources.list.d. I've created a new file called snapshot.list. And I'm going to go deb, because I want to specify that this is a Debian repository, and I'm going to paste what I just copied to my clipboard, which is the snapshot of January 6th. And then uh, buster. Main. That could be stretch. That could be whatever is available on that date. You couldn't go back to Jesse with this date because Jesse didn't exist. It was already EOL at that point. But you could go back further in the date stamps in order to be able to get Jesse repositories. Hold on to that thought for a second as you think about how do I take an old Jesse server and upgrade it to Buster? We use a snapshot repository so that we can do a dist upgrade of Jesse to the very latest Jesse repository before it was canceled, right? Before it went to EOL. Right. Then we can go to whatever we need, like Wheezy Stretch, Jess, uh, Wheezy Stretch, Buster, right yeah. all the way up, right? So, so we can do that by using this snapshot in order to get there. So with that set, so I've pasted that in, and I'm going Buster Main, or I can go Stretch Main, whatever it is that I'm going to be. Uh, so understand repositories. I'm not getting too far into that. But this is the distro that I'm using. So in my case, it is, in fact, Stretch. I could use Buster if I wanted to. Uh, and then write out the file with Control-O, because I've got Nano open, and then Control-X to exit. And now, apt update. And you're going to see that it's actually going to hit that... New repository, I go through all these uh, extra repositories I have for Sinalera, and it will actually get the repository for the, uh, the snapshot. But, do you notice, for that snapshot, Sasha, what do you mm -hmm. see? Snapshot. Yeah. The, this is, yep. ba 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 it's not signed. Oh. oh, what does that mean? Well, I don't actually have the GPG key. So everything is secure, but I need a GPG key in order to be able to synchronize that. Right. So, so I need to observe that. In this particular case, I need to notice that, hey, there's no key available for this pub key. 8B48AD. See that? That yeah. big long thing. So what I want to do, I'm, I'm going to copy that to my clipboard. And you're going to type this command. So as root, so notice I am already root, or you can use sudo. We can type apt-key adv-key-server space. Key, I'm going to use Ubuntu. So keyserver.ubuntu.com. It can be any key server that you like. 
dash dash r e c v dash keys receive keys and then paste so with that i'm going to paste that key number okay and hit enter and now if all goes well it's going to grab that key from the ubuntu key server keyserver.ubuntu.com which is just an apt way of authenticating the apt repository and should go through just fine here we go wait for it folks <laughs> there we go processed and imported i'm going to just move my screen up again because i know it's getting cut off just a little bit there for you there we are. So processed, imported, and good to go. So now if I type apt update, now I'm not going to get that error message anymore. It's going to grab the repository from the snapshot, and we're going to be locked in to that particular date, which is January 6th, 2019. Here we go. One of these days I'm going to delete that Sinalera. <laughs> it always <laughs> takes a while. There you go. See that? It's going through the, uh, the new repository for the archive of 2019-01-06. And there we go. So one final thought. So now it's saying that there's some, some extra files available. So one final thought is, remember, I've now added a new repository for that date stamp. However, I still have the old repositories active. So I do need to observe, and this is just simple apt, uh, knowledge, I need to observe the fact that I have other repositories already active here, and I need to probably remove some of these which may conflict. Okay? Right. Um, right. If you're going to lock it down completely, you may want to remove all of your repositories and simply stick with that snapshot. Now, this is obviously for Debian, but do the other repositories have them? Well, remember, I'm or on, something like this. I'm on uh, Linux Mint. Okay. which is a Debian derivative because it's a derivative of Ubuntu. Ubuntu is a derivative of... Am I talking sense? I'm tr I, I'm, I know it, but I'm forgetting. If there's a hierarchy, yes. there's Debian. Yes. Okay? And below Debian is Ubuntu. Yep. All right? Ubuntu is using Debian, Debian yes. as its base. That's what it's based on. So Ubuntu is essentially Debian with a bunch of stuff added and cleaned up and right. moved around. Okay, so then anything that's based on Ubuntu is like Linux Mint uh, and various other Linux distributions that are based on Ubuntu. Right. Well, they're still based on Debian. Right. right? So inevitably, you could now be careful, keep a backup because you might break things. But in this scenario, they're fairly compatible because it's all okay. Debian based. It's all apt get. It's all repository based. You can break things because Ubuntu Canonical may add things that really improve the Correct. experience for users or make it compatible with your architecture, for example. Right. Um, so you can break things. Um, but in the case of Debian Pure, like Debian itself from Debian.org, this process will allow you to lock it down at okay. a certain date. So I can set my repository to that snapshot date. Right. And now... I can do an apt upgrade, and it will upgrade to what? To now? No, it'll upgrade to January 6th. Correct. And it will lock it there. So it will never go beyond that as long as I don't have any other repositories that, that have newer flip. versions. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So uh, that is snapshot.debian.org. Very simple to use and set up, especially once you've got a, a slight grasp on the apt architecture, the way that apt-get works. Um, and that is a fantastic feature that's going to help you out as you, especially, I, I love the idea of migrating old servers to newer platforms. Mm -hmm. 
being able to move from Jesse to Buster seamlessly. Because remember, Jesse's gone. Jesse is EOL, so you can't do a dist upgrade anymore. But you can. Except you can. You can by using a snapshot. So is Jesse really EOL? Is it? Is it? It's like it's 2009. That's right. Thank you. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Sasha, send us away. Yes. If you have enjoyed the show, please stand with us and pitch in as little or as much as you can through our Patreon. Every person who becomes a patron helps us tremendously. It helps us grow, and you get some super awesome perks along the way. Mm. You can sign up today at patreon.com slash category five. Nice. And I want to remind you as well, before we wrap up, don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube. We are on there as Category 5 Technology TV for the full-length episodes. Or if you want just the snippets, like the little bite-sized pieces, uh, you can go Linux Tech Show. But I would encourage you to subscribe to both. Yes. And that's because you want to receive those notifications when we're live, as well as when we post new videos. Whether you tune in every single week or not, it's nice to get those notifications so you know, oh, look, Category 5 Technology TV is live. Let's go there. And I will say, the live show is kind of really what makes this so much more fun. Well, see, you know that. Don't tell them that. The patrons know that. The The patrons know that because they have access to watch it on demand. That's right. Yes. But the live show has... I know, but you want them to... Do we ever make mistakes and edit them out? Never. 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 (laughs) We're pro. Do we ever have bloopers behind the scenes? No bloopers. No. No. Never. But if you're a patron... Then you know. Then you know. Because you have (laughs) access to that. See, the odd time our little bloopers do make it on for those little clips. Never. And every once in a while I watch those just to kind of go back and go, ah, that's so much fun. Yes. But the live experiences is fun. Oh, yes. Absolutely, That's what I Jeff. keep coming back for. <laughs> and I'm glad because the news would be silent without you. <laughs> well, thanks for being here, everybody. Have a fantastic week. Don't forget to check out our website, category5.tv, and we'll see you next time. Bye.